Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Inspiring you to bring God back into the conversation of the day. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. My question this morning leading off is, uh, first of all, where in the Word are you today? I haven't asked that um, nearly often enough. So where in the Word are you today? I'm still in Romans 5. Um, But then my second question is, what are you learning in the midst of the experience that we are all now having So we're all having this experience together, but we're all having it uniquely and individually. What are you learning and how are you um, maybe chronicling or sharing what you're learning? So I know people who have been, you know, sharing via some particular social media or they have been keeping a diary or they have been um, vlogging or whatever. So how are, first of all, are you even spending time reflecting on what you're learning? Um. What was like, you know, what was maybe the first the first thing that you noted after everything shut down? You know, you realized, oh, now there's something I probably should have done in advance. Uh, maybe I wasn't as prepared um, as I thought. I mean, could we but, but could we ever have been reasonably prepared for a pandemic? I mean, I don't know. So it's an open ended question this morning. Is the pace of the way things are moving? Things are moving fast. Sometimes it feels like they are constantly accelerating. But then things have also slowed down to a total, other things have slowed down to a total halt. Um, There's some push-pull there. And I'm wondering how that is affecting you. Wondering um, how you're processing through all of that, who you're processing with. Um, How has it affected your prayer life? How has it affected your relationships with other Christians? Are you engaging more? Are you engaging less? Are you engaging uh, more intentionally? Are you, have you given up on Bible study? Have you given up on your prayer group? I, wanna, I want us to reflect this morning. So we have this research, you know, that basically says people have, Christians have changed the way they relate to their local congregations. And some, uh, you know, some believe that that is going to be a permanent readjustment. So let's personalize it. And let's ask that question of ourselves. How has this pandemic affected not only my prayer life, but my share life? How has it affected my relationships um, within my own home, within my own community, and certainly within the church? Um, And how has it uh, affected my understanding of life and death, the way I process things? Processing um, change, how we respond to it, is... uh, you know, it's a it's a critical thing that we learn, and we either learn it when we're little or we don't, right? And some of it is a demonstration of how our parents dealt with change and maybe um, how much change they introduced into our lives when we were little. There's some of that as well. Um, and so I just want to open up that conversation this morning, get us thinking about it, and then recognize that um, 
life is dynamic. I mean, that's sort of the nature of it. And so I want you to consider that the doors that have closed or the doors that are opening, you know, you can walk by faith through those. Or away, you can, you know, you can walk by faith away from doors that are now closed, and you can walk by faith through doors that are now open. And, and if you're walking with God, then all of those are going to be good places. Some of the experience of loss that we have is an openness to then new opportunities, new relationships, new places, new spaces, new, um, new jobs, new educational experiences. And so I just want you to consider the possibility and the hope on the other side of things that feel like um, so much loss. Dr. Linda Mental is waiting in the wings right now. Um, she and I are going to start with a conversation about the COVID-15. You've heard of the freshman 15. Come to find out there's also a COVID-15. Um, yeah. How, how do your pants fit? Have you tried to put on a business suit in the last couple of weeks? My guess is it doesn't fit anymore. All right. Dr. Linda Mental up next. All right, Dr. Linda Mental is here. You can find her at drlindamental.com, and she is going to tell us how to lose the COVID-15 we have gained. Linda, welcome back. <laughs> it's good to be with you. It was a great spot right before that, too, kind of <laughs> segueing us into this uh, segment. <laughs> All right, so um, we've, we've heard of the freshman 15. Is there really a COVID-15? Um, and, and maybe if it's not a COVID-15, you know, how, how do we... How do we stop using food to relieve our stress? Maybe that is just the straight up question here. Yeah, I think I think the issue here is what did COVID do in terms of our eating behaviors? Probably for a lot of people, it started a whole new stress eating uh, routine. And that's really the concern. Um, it's very easy to do. I just I just want to say up front, you know, Carmen, that when you're bored and you're sitting at your house for a long period of time and one of the few things you can do is cook and maybe eat as a family. Uh, food takes on a little bit more importance. It becomes more of a centerpiece in the family life. And you know, even think about all the people that are working from home and they have 24 access to the refrigerator and to snacking. Uh, you can go to a virtual meeting, you can turn off your camera, you can eat. Uh, you know, as a way of dealing with maybe the anxiety of the things you're talking about. So I've been working in the area of food and the relationship of our eating to our mental health and, and stress for years and years and years, treated a lot of patients with disordered eating. And it's no surprise to me that during this time that uh, especially people of faith who we hopefully don't turn as much, I would hope not, to illegal drugs or alcohol to medicate our feelings of being stressed, but the church has a long history of turning to food uh, when we get stressed. That's kind of our okay go-to when uh, we have, you know, difficulty and issues. And I understand it. I mean, it's really easy. Food doesn't ever talk back to you. It's always available, makes you feel better for the moment. So it's no surprise that with all the other things that we're learning about this COVID period, you know, increase in anxiety, increase in depression, increase in domestic violence, increase in suicides, increase in opioid overdoses. I mean, it just goes on and on. It's no surprise that there's an increase in overeating and stress eating 
and people are going to come out of this with weight gain. All right, so let's um, let's get to some ways we can deal with it. Uh, on on her blog, Linda actually has an article posted: ten ways to stop COVID overeating. You can find it at uh, drlindamental.com. You can also find it at beliefnet.com. Um, all right, so ask and answer honestly: Are you really hungry? All right, that that is a really good one. Let's let's just you know. Let's just assume that the answer to that is, no, I'm not really hungry. I just ate an hour ago, but I was passing through the kitchen and I thought, oh, maybe I'll have a little snack or grab a handful of something. So, um, so all right, my stomach is not growling. Let's go ahead and admit I'm not actually hungry and move on to number two. Okay, so the, the easiest thing to do when you're in that situation is just to distract yourself. If you can get your mind off of the food, you can do something else and move away from wherever you are for that moment, most likely you're gonna be able to resist that moment of eating. And we have a lot of research that shows if you can go 15 to 20 minutes without grabbing something that is just a, a craving related snack, the urge to eat it will go significantly down. And the distraction is, is more powerful than people think, Carmen, because when you distract, you're, you're distracting your brain to something different. You're saying to your brain, hey, that food is no longer so important. This is important. I'm going to have my brain focus on this. And it will take you, you away from that cycle of eating. So that is a good thing. If you just can do something like go out for a walk, you know, go play with your dog, go to a board game, do something. Just do something. Pick up a book, read your Bible, meditate for a few moments, get your mind on Christ instead of the brownies. <laughs> that, might, that will help you. And that is more. it's very powerful and people don't do it. All right. And then um, so distraction is really good. Um, I definitely especially if I replace the uh, temptation to grab a snack, if I replace that with something physical, then I'm also feeling like I'm doing something positive for myself. So it's like sort of that positive replacing of something that would have been negative, And then I just yeah. instantly feel like I've done something really good. Um, uh, keep don't don't buy tempting foods and keep them out of sight if you do buy them. Um Take only a few bites if you just have to have something. Let's talk about number five. Ask what I'm feeling. Right. So this is where you have to get a bit self-reflective. And I loved what you said earlier uh, in the show that, you know, you need to think about what's happening to you during this time of COVID. Do some self-reflecting. What are you learning? What is it that God is doing in your life? And I think that also relates to your behaviors. You know, why am I reaching for food? it's very likely that you're feeling voids. I mean, we all are, we're, we're feeling the void of touch, we're feeling the void of social connection and engagement in the way that we used to feel it. A lot of people are just bored. Um, you know, that's a big one for eating is when you're bored, it gives you something to do. But interestingly enough, uh, one of the, the, the first, the very first emotion that people go to food for is usually happy. Uh, I don't think that's happening too much in COVID time, but you know, sadness, loneliness, stress, uh, what's going on. And you have to connect the feeling with um, the urge to eat. That's just an important thing in any kind of self-reflective work. What's prompting that? What's triggering me? What's cueing that? And that's why sometimes removing the source of temptation, like not going to the store and buying gallons of ice cream or not having, like for me, I cannot have M&Ms in my mm. house or I'll eat the entire bag of peanut M&Ms. So I don't buy them. I try not to buy them. When uh, Halloween comes and there's, there's trick-or-treat candy, I always buy candy I don't like. 
anything with peanut butter, I don't like. So I buy those candies because I know I'm going to have a bag of those left over and I know I'm going to be tempted to eat it. But it's so important to, to prompt, say, what is the trigger? What is the prompt? And then you have to break that connection. And the way you break it is to do what you, you are saying. You do something else. So in a lot of the work that I do with people who are compulsive overeaters or emotional eaters, you know, the thing is, I, I tell them ahead of time, put a list on your refrigerator of 20 things that you can do in the moment when you feel like you're going to eat. So I'm, I'm first having them track what's prompting you to eat. Are you mad at somebody? Did you just have a terrible phone call? Um, did you just get hurt by some careless words? Did you feel rejected? What is it? Whatever it is, recognize the trigger and then go to your list and, and have the list ahead of time so you don't have to think about it and try to, in the moment, plan something and just pick something from your list and do it. And the reason that's important is because you're breaking that connection in the brain between the trigger and then your behavior. And you have to do that over and over and over in order to break a habit. So that's a, that's a really powerful thing to do. Just practice, 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 recognizing the trigger and then doing something different so that it's not, I feel this emotion, I go to the food. You're going to break that. All right. I'm going to encourage you to read the entire piece, 10 Ways to Stop COVID Overeating at DrLindaMental.com. When Linda and I come back, we're going to talk about a couple of other topics. One is overreacting. Um, and then the, uh, the final one is when good people do nothing. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. If I should speak, then there be all the grace that is greater All right. This, uh, this next piece by Dr. Linda Mental on overreacting. Um, suggest that she's been in my house. So, uh, Linda, <laughs> Linda, why, <Yeah>. why, <laughs> why do we overreact, and how do we stop ourselves in advance of of letting the crazy come out? Yeah, I think the most important part of why I wrote that that blog is because there's a lot of overreacting going on, not only in your house but in the culture. And everybody is just, everything is just so touchy and so sensitive. And what we're seeing is people just acting, you know, in anger and reactionary and, you know, not in very nice ways, very, very awful ways. And, you know, in the worst cases and with violence. So I started to think about this and I started to think about, you know, a lot of this has been born in all the talk we're having about discrimination. And there's a really important concept in that called the pile on concept. And when you are whether it's in a relationship or in the culture in some way, whenever you are someone who is experiencing discrimination or a lot of stress and things just keep happening over and over, small things, just little things. And I use the example on a blog, you know, you get out of bed, you stub your toe, then you go to the kitchen, your kid jumps on your foot, and then you go to work and your coworker actually let me drop something on your foot. And then at lunch, you, you go to a restaurant, when we used to go to restaurants, and, you know, the server drops a plate on your foot, you go home, your spouse just looks at you and you start to scream. And it's this pile-on effect that you've been your toe has been injured all day long. <laughs> and the next time someone does something to your toe, that's it. And then when you react, the person who you're reacting to just looks at you and goes, what is wrong with you? And I think that happens a lot in our life where stress and um, bad behavior that we receive just continues to pile up. 
And over time, what we see is that we snap if we don't deal with those things when they happen. And that's a big caveat on this, that the pile-on effect will happen to you because if you're someone who's been discriminated against uh, most of your life, after a while, all those bad remarks, those those that bad behavior, it, you know, it adds up in a lifetime and you have to be able to know how to respond to that. The easiest way in the flesh is just to snap back at someone and to, you know, try to hurt them back. All right. And you've got some really practical um, ways for us to um, to deal with this. What's what's one coping or I don't even know if it's a coping mechanism. What's one way to change this behavior? I think the very first thing and, and think about this when you get an email and somebody says something really terrible to you and you've had issues with that person for a long time, the easiest thing to do is just get immediately reactive and fire back. That's a mistake. Every time I've done that in my life, I regret it. <laughs> so yeah. I think the biggest thing is to breathe, to calm down your physical body. That's what breathing slowly does to pray at that moment and to say, okay, God, I'm inviting you into this situation. What is it you want me to do? And just be aware that this may be a reaction because of that pileup on effect that we're talking about. So don't respond immediately. If we can learn to do that, to be quiet, to wait, to think, to pray, and then have a godly response, which is harder to do than the flesh response, uh, then I think things are going to go a whole lot better. Absolutely. All right, let's deal with one more topic. I know we have to do so um, fairly quickly, but I know you you can do that. Um, we have heard the uh, we have heard the statement: the only thing necessary for evil to triumph is for good people to do nothing. Um, but we are living in a day and time when doing something, standing up, taking action, speaking um, speaking truth, doesn't just lead us to cringe. It often leads us to um, to withdraw. Why is it important for good people to do something right now? Yeah, I, I talk in the article about this this effect called the bystander effect, and it's really something we're seeing in the public's arena where you're in a crowd. And the research shows, Carmen, that when you're in a crowd and something bad happens, you're less likely to do something because of all the people around you. This is something called diffused responsibility. You think, well, somebody, it's not my job. I don't have to speak up. Somebody else is going to do it. I'm not going to do it. And usually that's because of fear or you just don't even know what to do at the time. So um, I think we need to take a, a chapter from the, the story of the Good Samaritan, and we need to look at the fact that so many people saw the need, saw what was going on, walked by that beaten and broken person, did nothing. And it's just not the love of God being evidenced in our life. We have to do something when we see injustice. We have to start speaking up, even if it's at a risk sometimes to ourselves. And I say that, and I'm telling myself the same thing. I have to have the courage at times when I know God is wanting me to speak up or to do something. And I think that's also key is that we need to really pray. I've been so cognizant of what Jesus, I'm in John, when you said, where are you at in the word? I'm in John. And it's the one gospel where we hear over and over from Jesus, I do what the father tells me to do. I say what the father wants me to say. And I'm trying to live my life a little bit more like that every day because there's so much injustice around me. There's so many issues that we're dealing with. I'm trying to pray every day, Lord, I just want to do what you want me to do. And if that means being courageous in that moment, I need to be courageous and you need to give me the strength to do that. And if I need to be quiet in a moment, then I need to know when to do that as well. So I think, you know, this is a time 
when we need to we need to act, but we need to act again with grace. We need to act and speak the truth in love, not in you know some revved up, hateful, inciting way, and to be respectful and loving to our neighbor in all cases. Absolutely, um, I am. Uh, I do not suffer from that diffuse responsibility issue. Yeah, I I tend to be the person who uh, who stands up and then. Um, maybe even maybe even they're reluctant in doing so but um uh, but people do tend to stand with you if you're willing to stand it it is yeah. it, it is an interesting phenomenon sometimes i i have not found that professionally i have found mm. that when i i'm like you i'm the one who i i fight for justice all the time it's in me that is a thing i even have one of my licenses says you have to do that so i am a justice fighter but I tend to do it, and then I find myself out there by myself, and I find that my colleagues a lot of time will go, well, Linda will, will do it. Let mm-hmm. her do it. Deal mm-hmm. with the consequences of it. So, you know, I'm tired of that. I'm really tired of that. But I know when I do it, I have to do it, and I have to speak the truth in love. Now, that's the hard part for me because I can, I'm a good arguer. I can take something. I can take an argument down in two seconds. I can go after somebody, and I know how to psychologically, you know, make them feel bad. <laughs> I can't do that as a person of faith because right. that is not in my life like Christ is. So it's it's a balance of doing it, but doing it in the right way and knowing when to do it. Man, you, you help so many of us do that. So thank you so much. I want everybody to check these three articles out. You can get them all at drlindamental.com and you can listen to uh, Linda's show on Saturdays. Hey, Linda, thanks so much. Great to be with you. Take care. We'll be right back. We got to take a break for Breakpoint. All right, the flight has landed in Abu Dhabi uh, at the airport, and I just want to celebrate that. There were some explosions very close to the airport just prior to the landing of the flight, but we want to celebrate that the peace flight from Israel to the UAE has landed. Um, and so just want to celebrate that and ask God's anointing on continued conversations related to the Middle East. Thousands of anti-government protesters uh, gathered in Belarus again, or in Minsk, the capital in Belarus, again yesterday, weeks after the country's disputed presidential election on August the 9th. Um, Want to continue lifting up this situation. Uh, The uh, Lukashenko government is uh, pressing hard now against protesters. They are, uh, they have deported two AP reporters from the country. And they are attacking the freedom of the press in addition to attacking their own people who are seeking to protest against what they view um, as a uh, a rigged election. All right. I'm going to do some international headlines next with David Aikman. We're going to do Japan, China, uh, Turkey, Russia and the EU and Venezuela. That's all up next here on Mornings with Carmen. This is Max Locato. The story of Jesus reads a bit like a scrapbook, headline clipping, Jesus' favorite stories and lesson outlines, Luke's snapshot of Jesus riding in Peter's boat, Matthew took the group photo when the 70 followers met for a party after the first mission trip, and John pasted a wedding napkin from Cana in the book as well, and a funeral program from Bethany. There are so many other things Jesus did. In fact, In his gospel, John says, if they were all written down, each of them, I can't imagine a world big enough to hold such a library of books. Who was this man? Jesus Christ. 
No question matters more. Consider reading the entire story from the Bethlehem manger to the vacated tomb and keep in mind that the final entries of the story are yet to come, including the snapshot of you and your Savior at Heaven's Gateway. This is Max Locato. My name is Bond, James Bond. Joining me now, David Aikman, editor of Godspeed Magazine. David, welcome back. Thank you, Carmen. Nice to talk to you always. Well, it's good to talk with you as well. All right, so we're going to turn first to Japan. Prime Minister Shinzo Abe uh, has uh, announced his resignation. Talk with us about um, uh, that transition. Well, um, Abe has had a number of health issues for the past year, which have taken him sometimes away from his regular work. And he's very concerned that considering the amount of therapy he's going to have to have, he cannot continue to function as an energetic uh, Japanese prime minister at the center of national activity. So he's stepping down for the duration of the therapy that he's going to have. All right. And remind us how in Japan, um, how will a successor be chosen? Democratic elections? Well, the successor is chosen from whoever in the the political party of the prime minister, which is a, basically a politically conservative party, is considered the best able to carry on the prime minister's particular policies and work with his associates. So I don't quite know who they'll select, but... Uh, Obviously, it will probably be a group of people who are eligible for the position. All right. The party is apparently going to decide uh, tomorrow um, how to go about um, holding holding the election. Um, it'll be followed by a parliamentary vote to elect a new prime minister. I, I, it's a it's a little bit more complicated process maybe than um, than in other places. So we'll just pay attention to that and see. Um, how that moves forward. You know, Japan is a is a significant um, ally, uh, partner. Um, and so we want to keep an eye on this because the relationship between the United States and Japan and the people of these two countries is, uh, you know, is important to us. Let's uh, let's also talk about what's going on in China. Um, China uh, has begun intercepting boats uh, of people seeking to flee Hong Kong. So we're back. Uh, we're back to the situation in Hong Kong. You want to bring us up to date there on developments? Yes. Well, this has not happened before. I mean, there are several Hong Kong residents and citizens have actually fled to Taiwan previously by basically flying there. But uh, these people tried apparently to reach Taiwan for political asylum on a boat and this really aggravated the communists, who are determined to stop any kind of flight from Hong Kong by citizens increasingly worried about the crackdown and the repression by the communist regime in Beijing on a city which they thought was going to have a completely free system of government 
for 30 or 40 years. So this is a very ominous development of people of Hong Kong. And then we also have um, uh, a warrant issued for a pastor's son there, um, a warrant for Samuel Chu. He's an American citizen. He's an activist. Uh, he's the son of a pastor. Do you know anything more about that story? Yes, indeed. Uh, well, he's spoken out prominently in Hong Kong democracy conferences, uh, criticizing the mainland. And nowadays, if you are any Hong Kong resident, even if you are not living within Hong Kong territory, much less China, you can be charged with sedition. So this fellow is apparently living in the United States in a suburb of Los Angeles, and he's been targeted by the mainland as uh, a sort of a traitor and a, a, a dissident. This is, this is very worrying because if people living in the United States quite legally who originally come from Hong Kong or China and have criticized the mainland regime, the, the possibility that efforts could be made to harass them within the United States is really quite innocent. So I'm mindful of the fact that uh, that Samuel Chu is in uh, Los Angeles. So um, we won't we won't worry for the imminent arrest by the Hong Kong police. Um, but this does this does remind me that um, China has now um, sanctioned several U.S. Uh, political leaders and human rights activists. Um, and so we really do have what I would describe as an an escalating diplomatic challenge when it comes to um, China. And it's not just in relationship to Hong Kong. It's also in relationship to their treatment of uh, of the Uyghur people. I see that emerging among lawmakers um, as, as really significant. Absolutely correct. I mean, what is really taking place is the acceleration of a new Cold War between China and the United States, which probably started several months ago, but it's taking root as these restrictions on Hong Kong citizens and residents continues to unfold. And I think the United States and China are going to continue sanctioning each other's senior officials uh, until some kind of resolution is achieved, and I don't see that happening anytime soon. Yeah, in fact, I, I would expect the the U.S. Congress to take action on the uh, the forced labor bills related to the Uyghur people, and that would result in uh, an additional uh, wave of sanctions as well. All right, David, let's take a very brief break. When we come back, let's turn our attention to Europe, which is in a tense standoff with Turkey and Russia. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. If you can All right, we're turning our attention to the Eastern Mediterranean. Uh, we're talking with David Aikman. Our attention is on Turkey and Russia. It's also on the standoff with the EU. Um, David, the, the Eastern Mediterranean was already, you know, crowded, right? We got refugees trying to cross from Libya to Europe. We got 
arms and mercenaries, you know, traveling in the other direction. We got Russia's new naval hub at the Syrian port of Tardis. What, um, you know, what, what do you want people to know about what is happening um, in this in this region right now, and particularly in the relationship between the EU, Turkey, and Russia? Well, most prominently, Tayyip um, Erdogan, the Turkish president, is um, trying to create a sort of Turkish-led caliphate modeled on the Ottoman Empire's sort of Islamic State. And he's doing so by sort of rippling his muscles in different parts of the Mediterranean. For example, he sent uh, naval warships um, around the coast of Cyprus to sort of intimidate the Greeks from continuing oil explorations off the Mediterranean Sea. But he's also uh, muscled into developing as strong a relationship as he can uh, in Libya. And finally, with the Russians, he is trying to build up a presence in, in eastern Syria which threatens the opposition groups supported by the U.S. who are challenging the regime of Bashar al-Assad. So in general, he is stirring the pot as furiously as he can to make it clear that people in the Mediterranean have to pay attention to what Turkey's interests are and what they absolutely insist are no-go areas, and this is a very dangerous development. So on the surface, this is a conversation about energy and oil, but beneath the surface, this is really about um, uh, territory. Um, It's really about um, dominance in a region, and uh, am am I reading that right? Well, yes, but there's more to it than that, Carmen, because what he's really trying to build up is a sort of base for a Turkish-led Islamic power center, not only in the eastern Mediterranean, but also in Central Asia. And he really wants people to take Turkey seriously as a re-emerging imperial power in an area where it used to have tremendous uh, power before the First World War kind of changed everything. Besides which, his version of Islam is very much a triumphalist, expansionist Islam, which focuses on the sayings of of Muhammad, the Hadith, in various writings in which he advocated real militant action against unbelievers. So this is a a development not only of great power strength, but of ideological interpretation of Islam in a very militant way. 
Um, all right. And so, you know, I guess I find myself with a persistent question, like, do they, does Turkey still belong in NATO? And what, what do you do when you reach the place where that conversation has to be had? Well, that's a good question, because the European Union can't seem to make up its mind how it should deal with Turkey, whether it would show sort of wrap the Ankara regime over the knuckles or ignore it or make pleas for better behavior. And the Europeans are worried because Turkey now has something of a relationship with Russia, which also is potentially a threat to European security. And then you've got the situation in Belarus where citizens are coming out in by tens of thousands on the street demanding that the election that was recently held be rescinded and that a new election take place. And Russia in the background hinting that, would, that it would be quite happy to secure uh, the regime of Lukashenko with its own security forces if asked to do so. All of that's another equation we have to consider. All right. And uh, there's a source in France reporting that Erdogan has converted another former church into a mosque following uh, his uh, his efforts with the Hagia Sophia. Um, Turkish President uh, Erdogan ordered another ancient Orthodox church become a mosque um, and then a popular uh, Istanbul museum turned back into a place of Muslim worship. So we know this. The, the, the second story reference there is the is the Hagia Sophia. The first story referenced um, is uh, is a Greek was a Greek Orthodox Church until uh, right. now it's the Holy Savior in Kora, a medieval Byzantine church, um, now uh, now a mosque as well. So um, the Islamization of uh, of Christian things certainly part of Erdogan's agenda, um, and the uh, the eye toward uh, becoming the seat of a new caliphate certainly a significant conversation for us to be having. Um, all right, we, um, we're, we're actually out of time, um, but give us one minute on Venezuela. Well, Venezuela is, of course, constantly under uh, economic pressure because the politics or the policies of um, the Venezuela regime are deeply socialist, and now they are using the COVID-19 crisis to crack down on people they don't want to oppose the the regime in Caracas. So COVID-19 is being used in this as an excuse to tighten up government screws in Venezuela, as it is being used in many other parts of the world, unfortunately. We have to look at this with great concern. David, thank you, as always, for helping us uh, keep our eye on things all over the world. We, uh, we appreciate our conversations with you. Good. Thank you so much, Tom, and very nice to be on the program. Likewise. We'll be right back. Okay, in the uh, headlines you probably haven't read, but a conversation that could totally change your day, uh, there is a company in Japan called SkyDrive. Uh, they, their field test is at Toyota, and they have announced a successful test drive 
of a flying car. Yep, that's right. They've actually got a flying car. It works. The SD-03 uh, manned with a pilot took off, circled the field, the test field there at Toyota uh, for a number of minutes. They say they're really excited, obviously. We want to realize a society where flying cars are an accessible and convenient means of transportation in the skies. And people are able to experience a safe, secure, comfortable new way of life. A new way of life indeed. So, uh, you know, if you just need a kind of a fun headline to talk about today, you could talk about uh, this Japanese company successfully testing the first manned flying car. That's all I got. I just thought it was a fun headline to walk off with. Meet George Jetson. Could be you. All right, we'll see you back here tomorrow. Have a great day, and God bless. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.